My name is Young, and we will now be reading today's passage in the scriptures from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, and Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 to 40. Now please follow along in your own Bible or the screen. Um, then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And um, Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 to 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the reading of God's word. <clears throat> well, good morning, True North. Uh, my name is Eugene. I'm a member of the pastoral staff here. I have the privilege of giving today's message. I want to thank Chuck for coming up. I don't know where, where are you? Oh, there you are. Thanks, Chuck, for coming up and speaking. Um, I know it's cold. I just turned on the heater because it was off for so long, so it'll warm up, so we apologize for that. <clears throat> There's a great article by the author Derek Thompson that came out this week entitled, America's Teenage Girls Are Not Okay. Uh, Derek is, is a great writer. Uh, he has a really good pulse of what's going on in our cultural moment in this nation, and, uh, you know, when you read that, uh, it sounds very, you know, world is falling apart, and you've heard this before, but as a father now of a daughter who's three, who in a couple of years, uh, sooner than later, she'll be a teenager, it struck me because as I read it, uh, the numbers were pretty staggering. Uh, one thing he notes is from 2011 to 2021, so in 10 years, the share of teenage girls who say they have experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness increased from 36% to 57%. So meaning at this moment, if you speak with a group of teenage girls, there's a good chance that over half of them have some sort of suicidal ideation, some sort of depression or anxiety that's going on deep in their souls. You think that, you're like, oh, that's, that's interesting. But what makes it even more perplexing is this. The article goes on to talk about the world has actually gotten better, especially for these kids who are called Gen Z. Drug use is down. Drinking is down. Even bullying is statistically down, especially for girls. And on the reverse, these economic trends, joblessness, poverty, hunger, they have all declined massively in the last 10 years. So Derek was perplexed. Why is it that our youth, who we covet, or we say that we covet, are, is facing this mental health crisis? He does a good job to kind of continue not to give answers, but to give more questions. And I think the, the question, you feel that not just with our youth, but with you and our people. There is a level of anxiety that does not make sense. How is it that we're more, quote unquote, connected as people? How is it that on my phone, I have the opportunity to connect with so many more people than it was even 10 years ago? How is it that with all these advancements, we are more and more anxious, isolated, and depressed? There's a lot of answers to that that maybe I'm not sure of, but I want to propose today a biblical answer to that. That often we forget that as we're in this series of called being made in the image of God, that we are made in the relational 
image of God, and therefore we are created ultimately for relationship. That to be human, to flourish as a human being at its core is not your achievements, it's not what you do or accomplish. At the core of your being as a human being is ultimately your relationships. And I would argue we've forgotten that, that we live in a time that community and relationship are second, third, fourth, fifth priority over the self. Um, a theologian, I'm going to quote a lot of people today, so I apologize, but um, they, they speak it better to me. A theologian by Leroy Howe puts it this way, human beings are created for community and nothing accomplished by way of individual fulfillment can fully compensate us for the misery suffered when genuine community is compromised. Even biblically, when you look at the story, I talked about this a little bit last week, but you know, how do idols work? How do the idols of your heart take control of you? Well, they isolate you. you know, if you worship money or prestige or beauty, what it tells you is you can only find happiness once you achieve me. And whatever that idol is, you can guess whatever you have in your heart, it always works by isolation. And, and this is even biblically true. Satan only attacks you in isolation. When you look at the Garden of Eden, when is it that the serpent approaches Eve? It's the minute that Eve is gone in intimate relationship. It's the minute that Eve is alone that the serpent comes. When does Satan tempt Jesus? It's only when he's alone in the desert that Satan appears to tempt him. What, what is that telling us? The enemy that we face today on a daily basis, it wants you to be alone because it knows that the core of your human being to be human is to be relational. And even on the flip side, what, you know, we, we read two passages and you might be thinking like, how does that even connect? Well, when Jesus tells you, what is the greatest commandment? That's, a, that's a, it, the question is very weighty. What the lawyer is asking Jesus is, what does it mean for God to see me and say, you're doing a good job. This is what's important. What does Jesus respond with? He doesn't say, you got to do these things. He doesn't say you got to accomplish these things. What he says is two simple things. Ultimately, just one thing. You have to love God and love others. What does that mean? God is supremely interested, not in what you do, but in your relationships. Why is that? Well, let's, let's take a bigger step back. Before we get into why God cares about it, I would argue that we live in a moment in society where it's almost impossible to live relationally. Um, we live in, an uh, in the age of what I would call individualism. Um, I've talked about this before, but I, for me, I love <clears throat> sociology. I love the idea of figuring out what makes you you. And this is the thing, the question of what makes you you, you answer that every day, subconsciously and consciously. What determines who you are? How, do you, how would you describe that? Well, let me give a, a very broad but a, a quick historical background. Before the Enlightenment, so before we became quote-unquote modern or Western, before Europe became the center of the world, every, the reality around you, the, the, the way you answer that question, what makes you you, was not what you wanted to do. It's not what you desired to do. It was the communities and relationships given to you, for better or for worse. So what I mean by that is this, your life pre-1500s, if I was living in uh, Korea in, in like, let's say 1100, um, 
to determine what makes Eugene Eugene, it wasn't like, well, what do I want to be? It's, well, who is my dad? Oh, is he a farmer? Then I'm a farmer. What city do I live in? Because if I'm going to get married, it's only the people in this city. Oh, what church will I go to? There's only one church. And if your pastor sucks, well, you're going to have to deal with that until he dies, right? So for better or for worse, before your life, your identity was, comp was compromised of just what the communities around you were. Community, back then, it was not a philosophical idea or choice, but rather a reality of how you found yourself. And I want to I caution this. It's for better and for worse, because like arranged marriages, you know, those suck, right? Um, the fact that you're stuck in the economic class of your family, that, that's not the best uh, of life, too. But this is the problem, um, and this is a problem just with human history as a whole. We've, we've shifted so radically to the other side. Today, what characterizes your identity is not the community you're in, but rather it's an inward quest for personal happiness. What makes you you is not the people around you anymore. If I ask you today, what makes you you, usually the answer will consist of, well, this is what makes me happy, and this is who I'm trying to be. You know, work-life balance, happiness and work and all that. And this is the crazy thing. You know, um, if, you, if you ask maybe your grandparents or just anyone that's a little older than uh, um, your parents, if you ask them, hey, how did you find happiness in your work? They, they wouldn't be able to comprehend that question. Because to them, they would say, happiness in work, happiness is not found in work. My happiness was found that through work, I could provide for your parents and your family. Many of us here are immigrant, you know, immigrant, come from immigrant families. The reason our parents came was not to find personal work happiness. It was to provide happiness, to find happiness by providing for your family. But things have shifted now. For us, happiness and identity is not found outwardly, but it's found inwardly. It's found in your desire. It's found in who you want to be. You know, back then, there was something out there bigger than yourself, which you committed to. Now the biggest commitment in your life is to your desires. Does that make sense so far? With that, the problem is this, because we've tilted to the other side, now that we enter into a relationship or community, we no longer enter into it wanting to give ourselves into this relationship or community. Now we walk into any relationship or community seeing what I can take for myself. We live in the age of consumerism. That whenever you walk into a marriage, a dating relationship, a workplace, a church, a community, whatever it is, the question now is, well, what is in it for me? Again, I noted, I'm going to quote a lot of people, so I apologize. But Dr. Eva Aluz, who's a, who's a Hebrew sociologist, she puts it this way. We have withdrawn to a highly subject, subjectivist form of individualism. This means that our emotions have become the moral ground for our actions. The prevailing mentality is this. I feel something, therefore I am entitled to make this demand or withdraw from a relationship. It's a little harsh, but it's true. As your pastor, and even looking into my own life, that statement is so true. In every relationship or community that we walk into now, it's now flipped. 
how can we benefit from this relationship rather than how can I find meaning from this relationship? Does that make sense? And I'll explain it this way. You know how I know this to be true from all the statements that we hear? Well, you got to find the real you, right? Like, let that come out. Another thing I always hear, like, who's toxic around your life? Like, people love saying that. What does that mean? What that means is when you enter into any relational space, oh, who is not fitting me? I'm going to just cut myself off from them. Right? Another thing I always hear, especially from younger people, like, oh, do I need to settle to find a spouse? Like, do I need to settle? Do you know how pretentious that is? <laughs> do I need to settle to find someone that fits you? Because what we're saying now when we say, oh, man, like, I hear this a lot. You know, I'm, I'm looking for a husband or a wife, and, like, just no one fits my perfect image of my spouse. Should I settle? Um, that alone shows us how much of our relationship and relationship with relationships community have changed. We are at the center. We are at the center of everything. Even when we come to church, it's even the idea of church hopping. Right? I don't know if you know that term, but the idea like, let, let me hop till I find a church. And so often, I'm, I'm not calling anyone out here, but so often I even hear like, people will drive over an hour to find a church that fits them. Maybe, and if, hey, if you came over, no, 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 no disrespect to you, right? right? This is just the time that we're living in. But do you see the problem that we now face? It's so difficult to enter into a relationship for the sake of the relationship. Um, there's a great article, uh, I think it's called Letting Therapy Speak Invade Everything. If you have time, it's the New York Times, I'd really... Uh, would encourage you to read that because what it talks about is how we've weaponized therapy so that we see any relationship and if it doesn't fit our needs we cut it off oh it's toxic you're a toxic person well usually you're toxic too my homie right we're all toxic that's that's what it means to be human and she puts it this way the idea that we are quote-unquote authentic and the truest parts of our humanity can be found in our desires and not our obligation risks cutting us off from one of the most important truths about being human. Mind you, this is in the New York Times. We are social animals. We are social animals. And while the call to cut off the toxic or to pursue the mantra to live your best life or you are enough may well serve some of us in individual cases, the normalization of narratives of personal liberation threatened to further weaken our already frayed social bonds. It's a heavy quote, but what she's saying is this, it is now impossible to enter into relationships. And that's a problem because we are made to be in relationship. And I can go on and on, even in this church so often, and this is, I'm not calling anyone out, this is even for me. When I walk into church, it can so, be, it can so easily be the temptation, how can I mold this community to fit my image rather than me and this community reflect the image of God. So that's the case. What can we do? Well, if you look biblically, if you look at just the idea that we've been preaching on the last couple of weeks, you need to realize this. The image of God that we're made in, it reveals that to be human is ultimately to be social and relational beings. That to be human is to be social and relational beings. What do I mean by that? You know, if we go back to the first text that we read, uh, that we're made in God's image, in his likeness. And if you remember, if you're here uh, a couple of weeks ago, it's an important idea 
because the author repeats it three times. You are made in God's image. You are made in God's image. You are made in God's image. Why is it so important? Because it denotes, there's so many things we could parse out, but one key thing that often I have forgotten and that we forget is this. Note, when you look at the text, the, the grammar changes. So uh, I'm gonna get a little nerdy here, but I hope this will help you. Um, in the Genesis narrative, when God is making the world in six days, the first five days, it's always God in the singular. God said, and he did it. God said, and this happened. All of a sudden, in verse 26, it changes. The grammar changes. There, it, this is not a typo in your Bibles. This is not some weird, like, oh, something went wrong. No, this is on purpose. Verse 26, then God said, let us. All of a sudden, God is in the plural. That, that's like, that should strike you as weird. Let us make God, or let us, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us make man after our image, after our likeness. This is a grammatical change. All of a sudden, God is in the plural. What is going on? You see, for many of us, we forget this, that we don't just worship a singular God, but we worship a Trinitarian God. And this could be a whole nother sermon about the Trinity. But let me give you one simple truth about the Trinity that we believe in, that we believe in a God, Father, Son, and Spirit. One being three persons. One being three persons. How does that make sense? I don't know. I don't know. And if you grew up in the church, you probably heard all these analogies like, oh, God is like water, ice, and smoke, right? That's all heretical. You got to throw that all out, okay? Um, that's not true. The one true statement is this. God is one being in three persons. And it's like, oh, that's really nerdy. But you have to understand, that doesn't make sense logically, but practically, there are such deep implications about us from that. Because what is God saying? He's saying this, the main practical takeaway, you're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. But if you could take away one thing from the sermon, remember this, we worship a God who is in constant, perfect relationship with himself. And that sounds like, oh, he's very uh, full of himself. No, it's a trinity. Father, Son, Spirit, loving each other perfectly. Do you see that distinction and why that's important? We worship a God that's in constant relationship. It never ends. I'm going to get a little more meta. So if this doesn't make sense, you know, you can come up to me like, that doesn't make sense, and I'll change it for hopefully next year, right? But this is what it means. The three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, they are person precisely because they are in relationship. What that means is this. Their personal identities as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit can only emerge out of their relationship. I know that sounds like, oh, that's, that's like a philosophical, like am I in philosophy 101? But you just try and, try and remember that. For the Trinity to exist, the Father only exists because he has a Son. For Christ to be the Son, he only is the Son because he has the Father, and the Spirit is loving them perfectly in that triune union. To make this more practical, you know, one verse that's always used, God is love, right? God is love. I see that in bumper stickers all the time. God is love. Um, what does that mean, right? Because that sounds very hippie, right? So what, like, it's, it's a nice saying, but what does that practically mean? What John is saying in 1 John 4, 8, with that, he says God is love. What he's saying is we worship a God that is in perfect, loving relationship. God is love. Not love is God. And he could also said God is loving. No, he says God is literally love. 
because at the core of his being, God is a relational God. Does that make sense? If you're lost, this is the practical takeaway. If God is a relational God and we are made after his image, what does that mean for us? That we are not individuals, that we are not the culmination of our accomplishment and desires. We are ultimately to be human is to be relational. To be human means to be from another and for another. Jesus reveals this to us uh, as the perfect image of God when he says, this is the greatest commandment. Think about that. Think about the weight of what Jesus is about to tell you. This is the most important thing that God cares about. What does he say? Love God with everything you have and love everyone else just as you love yourself. That's actually three commandments, but that's a whole other sermon. But do you understand what that means for us? We are relational beings. Stanley Grenz, again, I'm going to quote a lot of people, but I just want to, I want to bake this into your minds. The image of God that we have, it does not lie in the individual per se, but in your relationships. The relational life of God, who is triune, comes to representation in the communities of humanity. You know what makes you you? It's not what you want to be. It's the relationships around you. You know how I know this? Right, I'll make this uh, more down to earth. Um, I don't know how many of you guys have physically been in uh, a place of childbirth. You know, I have um, twice. This is crazy, right? Um, even if you watch movie, like videos about it, like, it just doesn't prepare you for it. And I remember the most craziest part of the first time, um, my first child, uh, Eli, my son, when he was born, it was a wild time. My, my wife was in labor for like 40 hours, which is a whole other story. Um, very painful for her, and I was just like, I'm trying my best, but watching Netflix at the same time. But anyways, as that's all going on, right, Eli pops out. And when he pops out, they don't tell you is they look like an alien, right? I was like, that's my son? Like, is that human? Like, that's weird. And all of a sudden, I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm like, hey, I'm an observer. I'm just here to, you know, support my wife. The nurse, like, take off your shirt right now. I was like, what? Take off your shirt and lay down. And I was like, all right, cool. So I, I laid down. She just threw Eli at me. I'm like, what the, what the? She's like, put him in your chest, right? So this is really weird, right? As I put him in my chest, you can tell he's searching for something to look at. And he finally matches eyes. And I'm just like, oh, this is cool. Why am I doing this? The nurse tells me, for children right at birth, their first instinct is not food, is not water, it's not even air, it's to find another human being to connect eyes with. Their first instinct is to match eyes and to suck, right? Also, what does that mean? We were created, even from the beginning, for relationship. To be in relationship is to be a human being. And studies have even shown when you don't, at an early age, have a healthy space, even when they're less than two months old, if you don't have a practice of matching eyes, of giving them relationship, even though they're not conscious human beings, you know, in, in intelligence ways, they suffer huge intelligence setbacks later on. I'll make this even more practical, if that's like too like crazy for you. Eli, again, he's now four. Nothing has changed. He still wants relationship to be human, to be Eli. For Eli to be Eli as my son, in his world, when I ask him, like, Eli, what does it mean to be Eli? It's like, oh, you're my dad. Oh, you're my mom. Oh, you're my sister. You know how I know this? I've talked about this before, but Eli, um, he's been doing a lot of sports. It's like, it's like, oh, not a lot of promise. But recently, recently, he's, he takes after his dad, but recently, 
um, playing basketball, like he, there's like promise and joy, right? Where he's like kind of good. Like I've brainwashed, I've watched so much Steph Curry with him that he thinks like every basketball player is Steph Curry. But anyways, I've watched enough where he enjoys it. And he just had a basketball camp for the first time and he, had a, he did really well. And I remember I'm just standing there and he's uh, learning how to shoot and he can shoot. Like I'm kind of right for like a four-year-old, right? And I was like, oh, that's crazy. But the crazy thing is if he shoots and he makes it, it's personal success. It's an achievement he's done. Do you know what the first instinct he has when he makes a basket? It's not to be like, yeah, I made it. It's not to like flex on anyone. He always turns to me and says, Appa, did you see that? Appa, did you see that? For Eli, even all the accomplishments that he commits, it does not matter if it's not in the context of relationship. Whatever he does, he always looks for me for affirmation. He always looks to my wife for affirmation. Why is that? Because he even understands at his age to be human is what? To be in relationship. We are not individual beings with a brain with two sticks that walk around. We want to believe that. But deep down inside, you know this, we are made in God's plural image. One being, three persons, and we're supposed to practice that. And really quickly, what that means for us is a lot of things. But what that means for us vertically is that we are called also not to believe in God, not to do things for God, but to be in relationship with God. And you think, like, we've heard that so much, right? And culture, the around, especially the Western culture around us, it makes fun of that a lot because it's a weird thing. You know, in Avengers, um, a very random uh, story, but in Avengers, when, when Star-Lord, Chris Pratt, meets Iron Man and Doctor Strange for the first time, Doctor Strange is like, there's like, they're in like a standoff, and they ask him, like, which master do you serve? And Star-Lord's like, what am I supposed to say, Jesus, right? And what he's saying is kind of, there's like this cultural, like, um, weirdness that like, dude, Christians, you guys are way too personal with your God. And you have to realize it's a very unique thing for our religion to be this personal. I would argue this, every other religion in the world is not a relationship. Every other religion in the world is a set of things to do for a God that is above you. Christianity is the first religion, and I would argue the only religion where God says, I've come down to make a relationship with you. What does Jesus say to his followers? He doesn't say, hey, believe in me and do these things. He says, follow me. What that denotes is enter into a relationship with me. What Christ is revealing for us is this. He did not come so that we just have the right beliefs or practices, but his life and death and resurrection on our behalf for our sinful selves is to establish a new relationship with God on the cross. The reason we worship together and we worship intimately is because that is who we're called to be. And I could spend a lot of time on the vertical, but with the time remaining, if this is true, what does this mean for our horizontal relationships? What does this mean for ourselves in our lives today? How does this practically work for us? Um, you know, as I was preparing the sermon, I realized this is a lot of stuff, right? But three quick things that I hope, especially for True North, we can take to heart. If we are made in the image of God and that we're made to be in relationship because our God is in a perfect relationship, the first thing is this, you have to deal with your past. Um, you have to deal with your past. Um, you know, majority of us, uh, and this could speak to anyone, but the majority of us here are from immigrant families. And even if you're not, you have to realize this. 
every family of origin, however, however happy you think it is, however much you ignore it, um, they are responsible for better or for worse to the good parts of you and the bad parts of you. If we're made to be in relationship, what that doesn't mean, it just doesn't affect our present and future. It also needs to rearrange how we view our past. Because Chuck even mentioned this too. When you have trauma, your first instinct is to ignore it. Trauma always comes out of relationship. We are not independent of others, nor did we create ourselves. Our identity arises out of the past joy, the past trauma, the past heartache, the past victory, the past loss, the past pain, as we're co-created in God's image and also we're co-created out of our families of origin. Um, I've preached about this a lot, but I, I really think this is something that we as people have such a difficulty doing. Um, you have to own your past. If you don't own your past, your past will own you. Because those relationships created you, whether you like it or not. Another way to put it is this, uh, whatever you don't transform, you will always transmit onto others. If you're married, you know this. You did not marry a husband or a wife. You married a son or a daughter of a very different family and often a very broken family. You gotta deal with your past because we're relational beings. The more you ignore it, the more power it has over you. And the beauty of the gospel is this, it gives you a new narrative to live out of, that we are not just made out of our families, but as we own up to that, we realize we're made in Christ as well. I could spend another sermon on that, but one, remember this, deal with your past. Second, you gotta change how you view church, um, especially at True North. Um, you have to fight to make this a place where we just don't consume but rather it's a community that we build our belonging and meaning out of. It's really difficult in a modern age to walk into any group of people, any institution, and not let your guard down. And I understand, totally understand. And, and, and I'll be honest here too. This, I'm not trying to say True North is perfect. I'm not saying that we have everything figured out. We don't, we don't. And you know how I know this? I'm in every staff meeting, okay? We don't have things figured out. We're very imperfect. But the strength of our church doesn't come out of perfections of our systems, of, of, our, uh, of you know, our programs, of our groups. It doesn't come out of any of that. It comes out of, is our church being made in the image of you or the image of God? The temptation, whenever you walk into church, is to form this place to make it the image of yourself. But the reason God calls us in community is so that we can be reminded we're made in the image of God. And a really quick caveat, don't let Satan whisper this into your ear. I know I'm not going to be here for that long. Right? The, the, the curse of the Bay Area is that we know a lot of us are in and out. We know a lot of us, like, you know, I, some of you here, I know this. You're, you know, like, I'm only going to be here for, like, one more year, six more months. So you know what? I'm just going to attend, quote, unquote, True North. Don't, don't let Satan whisper that into your ear. If you think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just here for a little bit, and you think, the next place I'll go to, I'll really root myself down. That's all Satan whispering into your ear. The question that we have to be asking ourselves, however long we think we're going to be here is this, how can we make True North not look like the image of my desires, not look like the image of myself, but the collective image of God? Community, and I always say this, community is never found, it's only built. 
everyone wants to stumble into community like hidden treasure on a sand. Like metal detectors, like, oh, I found it. Let me just dig and I found it. That's not how community works. That's how friendships work. That's a whole different story. Community is not found, it's built. And that's what we're called to do here at True North. I think this, and you might think like, oh, that's a very um, selfish focus of True North, to only focus on ourselves. And this is the thing. We want to be a church that's outward facing. The whole point of being called True North is that we're pulling the barriers to our True North in the gospel. But I would argue this. Our greatest witness, our greatest weapon, not weapon, but our greatest tool to this world is not our ideas, but our relationships. Because if people walk in here who don't know Jesus, maybe you did too, and they see this is nothing, this is the same as any other broken institution in the world, why would they stay? At the church, let's build this place to look at the collective image of God. Deal with your past, deal with the church, and lastly, deal with crappy people. Um, and I mean that, and, I, and that sounds crass, but this is the thing. When we're in relationship with people, we're always in a relationship with broken people that piss you off, right? Uh, if you're married, you know that. If, you're, if you have a real friendship, you know that. Like there's every relationship goes well for a little bit and then there's a moment where everything just kind of dissipates. What is that? There's a moment of tension where the, the, the brokenness of another person is revealed. And this is the thing. Um, if we're made in the image of God, and I'll close with this, what we're called to do is to be reflecting God's perfect love in all of our broken relationships. I've talked about this before. What is a painting? A painting is an image, and that image always stays the same, no matter where it is, no matter who you are, no matter what time period it is. What God is saying is this. In the relationships that you're in right now, can you reflect Christ's perfect love? So how do we do this? We have to learn how to be curious and compassionate in our relationships. Um, this, 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 this isn't a, a personal discovery. This is more out of therapy of myself. Um, one thing my therapist has told me has changed a lot of how I view life. If anyone does something unkind to you, they're revealing something more about themselves than you. If anyone does something unkind to you, they're revealing something more about themselves than you. For example, uh, you know, let's say I ran a marathon, hypothetically, because I, I never would. But let's say I did. Let's say I go to my brother goes to this church, right? And I'm like, yo, Kevin, I ran a marathon in like this time. And he's like, oh, that's cool. I ran it 10 minutes faster than you before, right? I didn't ask you that, right? Why, why did you tell me that? There's two choices I could make. Um, I could either lean into my frustration or I can lean into my curiosity. If I lean into my frustration, what that always will turn into is animosity. If I'm frustrated, like, why did, why did my brother say that? He's younger than me. He should respect me, right? right this may, maybe this is bleeding too much from my personal history, right? He should respect me, right? Like, who does he think he is? You know what? The next time I see him, I'm not going to talk to him. 95% of our relationships go that way. When you look to Jesus, he does something very, very different. You know how many people are unkind to him? One of his disciples sold him out. One of his disciples at the cross said, peace out, man. This ain't for me. Jesus' whole life is dealing with unkind people. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't lean into his frustrations, although he is frustrated. He's human. Frustration is not a sin. What he does is he leans into his curiosity. You know what Jesus, the, the fun thing about Jesus, if you remember him um, in, his, in the stories of the Gospels, whenever he deals with people, what does he do? He always asks questions. He asks questions to Judas, who's about to betray him. 
He asks questions to Peter, who's going to abandon him at his death. He asks questions to Pontius Pilate, who's about to kill him, although he doesn't deserve to be killed. Why does Jesus do that? Because he is the perfect image of God. And what he realizes is this. In the relationships that he's in, he has the potential and the power to give life. As long as he's curious, because curiosity always leads to compassion. Going back to my brother, I'm like, if I don't lean to my frustration, if I lean to my curiosity, if I ask myself, why did my brother tell me that? Oh, maybe he feels insecure. Or maybe he feels that I'm always trying to belittle him with my achievements. Or maybe he doesn't feel safe around me and our family. These, are, these questions will lead to completely different actions. In all of our relationships, do not lean to your frustration, but lean to your curiosity because it always leads to your compassion. Jesus on the cross was the ultimate show of that. When Jesus goes to the cross, what he's saying is this, my curiosity to you as broken sinners has led me here to giving up my body and compassion to you. So to close, let me put it this way, in a highly individualistic world where relationships weigh more, our comfort and desires weigh more than our relationships, let's build a life in a church based on the image of God because we worship a God in perfect relation in the Trinity. And what that means is we're built for perfect relationships ourselves. Let's pray.